Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. L.B. Hathaway's Posey Parker Mysteries are Amazon bestsellers, and that's not surprising because they combine the charm of the classic Golden Age country house mystery, the Agatha Christie set, with the glamour and excitement of 1920s London. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today LB, or Lily as she's called, talks about her latest book, Murder on the White Cliffs. Yep, that is the White Cliffs of Dover. She tells why Noel Coward's favourite bay and beach house feature in the story, and she lets us in on the secret of how she fits her writing career around being a mum to two small girls. But before we get to Lily, just a reminder, you can find the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. You'll find Lily's books, her social media, as well as book giveaways and the chance to stay in touch with us there on the website. While you're there, leave us a recommendation or a comment. We love to talk to our listeners and hear back from you. But now, here's Lily. Hi there, Lily, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Jenny, for having me on. Thank you. It's such an honour to be on your show today, and thank you. Perhaps just at the beginning, we'll clarify your author name. You write mm. under the name of L.B. Hathaway, but you are Lily. So anybody mm. who's looking for your books, it's under the name L.B. rather than Lily, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's L.B. Hathaway, yeah. Great. Look, how did you get started in this wonderful creation exercise that you've you've now embarked on? You've got at the eighth book out soon. Was there a once upon a time moment when you thought, I've just got to write fiction? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think storytelling has always been really important to me, like since I was a child. I always did write fiction you know, little bits here and there, poetry, um, short stories. I never thought I could be a fiction writer as my career, you know, to kind of earn money. And so I studied hard and I became a lawyer and I spent my 20s doing that. The once upon a time moment didn't happen. It was more of kind of, it was a, a catalyst in my own life. It was, a, it was a, an odd time. So I had met my husband and we moved to Switzerland and I had resigned from my job as a lawyer in the UK, in London. And I was starting to look for other jobs in Switzerland. And I had this time, this period of time, this kind of bubble ahead of me. And um, it was a real gift, actually. It was the first time I had um, not been working or studying in pretty much my whole life. And I decided in that time that it was the time to write a book. And um, actually, I wrote two books pretty much one after the other. And they became the first two Posey Parker novels. So it kind of came out, it came out of a, a break, a career break in a way. And what happened was that the Posey Parker series really took off and I never did have to look for that sort of job as a lawyer again. And I also, I I had my first child actually about a year later. So then I became a full-time mum as well um, and started to balance and juggle the two together. (laughs) 
Well, that's a great story. It's funny how quite often a hiatus in life's flow like that can give people that opportunity to look at themselves and think, this is something I really want to do. So that's fantastic. Now, as I've mentioned, the eighth one is just out. Posey Parker Mm. is a mystery series set in the 1920s. And it's it's almost a classical golden age type of uh, mystery set Mm. in country houses and that kind of thing. What Mm. attracted you first of all to the mystery genre as your chosen genre? Yeah, I I think that to be a good writer or just to enjoy writing, actually, you need to really love your subject and to kind of almost, you know, to live and to know your subject. And I just simply adore mysteries and I adore, you know, I I adore Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers. Um, I think probably 90% of what I read myself are mysteries. And I like that whole kind of aspect of puzzle piecing, kind of the whole the whole thing together and red herrings, putting it together. So if I was going to be writing something, it was always going to be a mystery. And added to that, I really like history. It was always going to be historical mystery. And I, I, I do, the Posey Parker mysteries carry a very slight, it, it's not a supernatural edge, but there's a very sort of, yeah, a kind of a, a tinge of otherworldliness maybe to them as well a kind of sense that not everything is explainable with, you know, cold, hard facts, that there's this there's this other area, a grey area, where sometimes events and people, they just can't be explained like that. And it's a slight exploration of, of that, I suppose, as well, of, of ghosts, of coincidences, of, of, of emotions as well, as well as there being a, a real mystery at the heart of each book. Yes, it's a sort of inevitability of fate, a sense Mm -hmm. of inevitability about some events or serendipity, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And the 1920s, what made you attract, attract, what attracted you to the 1920s? For me, it's a fascinating time. It's always been a fascinating time. I suppose I'm focused very much on London, I mean, um, on on Britain, but mainly, mainly London in the Posey Parker novels. And it's such an interesting time, the 1920s, between the two wars, it's a real kind of everything's you know it's a very hedonistic time for fashion and for, for music there are people you know dancing to jazz on tables at the cafe de paris it, it's a great time but at the same time it's a terrible time there's evidence of the war everywhere there's sort of men sitting on every street corner in london begging back from the war you know there's no one looking after them i think exploring a very strong female character is interesting putting her in a 1920s context as well because it's a really interesting time for for women. All these men have died and there's a lost generation of women as well, women who might have been wanting to get married or get engaged or have gone down that path, suddenly find themselves having to reinvent themselves as single women, having to get a job maybe for the first time or to carry on with the job that they had taken on in World War One, and it's a time when women are fighting for equal pay in in the UK. They're fighting for the right to vote. So I think it's a really interesting time for for putting a female character, sort of placing a female character there. I wanted to put Posey Parker there. I wanted to explore a character who was facing all of that, but not just facing that, like facing that and really thriving as well. Yeah. And in this book, The White Cliffs, it's, it is mm. called Murder on the White Cliffs. I don't know if yeah. we mentioned the title so far. And the White Cliffs are those famous cliffs of Dover that are known from the old song. Um, yeah, they are, yeah. And the specific bay the book is set in, St Margaret's Bay in Kent. 
has yeah. rather amazing historical connections in itself. And you do a lot of research on that bay and give some wonderful explanations at the back of the book, even with photographs of the actual physical reality at the time that the book is set. Tell us a bit yeah. about that. It's a fascinating history. Yeah, so it's um, it's the part of um, England which is closest to the continent. It's 21 miles to, um, to France. And in fact, now when you, if you go to St Margaret's Bay, your cell phone reception will rather be from a French provider than an English provider, which is quite interesting. It's, it is a really fascinating place through history. So it, it's this kind of, it's this border um, country, which I think is always fascinating for a writer. It's a place which became a very glamorous resort in the night from the 1920s up to the Second World War. It attracted a lot of film stars, a lot of um, royalty, a lot of uh, playwrights. Noel Coward had a house there, and Ian Fleming of Bond, of Bond fame also lived there. He had a house there as well. And in fact, 007 itself was the local bus number which ran from St Margaret's Bay to Dover. So. Um, yeah, it has this. It has this very kind of glamorous past, but it's a very short-lived glamour. It was really it stopped at the Second World War, and um, the place was completely destroyed in the Second World War, and it never recovered. So, which in a way is nice now because it, it never sort of became like a theme park or anything. It's a very quiet bay to go to now. Um, but it has this kind of it has this like darkness as well about it. It has a whole history of smuggling as well, and so yeah, I, I suppose it just has a lot of. A lot of history behind it, and you can really feel that when you go there. Mm. And I found it interesting that you actually remark that it still is a hot spot for smuggling today. And I guess I thought of smugglers today more uh, like using airlines and things, and I suddenly yeah. this image of people <laughs> landing goods on a shore. It seemed amazingly antiquated, really. What kind of smuggling still goes on there? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I can't give you an example of like this year, but the most recent high-profile case that took place there was taking place, I think, up to about 2016, but it was um, tried last year in a court in the UK in, in 2019. So um, there's a very famous um, actress called Miriam Margoyles who was in um, the Harry Potter films playing Professor Sprout. And she, among a lot of other actresses and actors, have how uh, she has a house in St Margaret's Bay and she rents it out actually as sort of short, a short, short let. And completely unbeknownst to her, she had rented it out to a, a drugs gang who were smuggling in huge amounts of cocaine. I mean, tens of millions of pounds worth of cocaine. And they were flying it in from Holland over the channel and landing on the White Cliffs and then um, taking it on from there. And it was all being done at the dead of night. And this is reported, you know, it's a case which has been reported in the, in the law courts. And it was, you know, she had no idea it was going on. It was absolutely horrified and uh, very publicly sort of, you know, um, shamed them and said how, how dreadful it was. But so that's, the ju that's just a case we know about. So, I mean, I'm sure it is going on. <laughs> How amazing. I hadn't ever noticed that in the, in the news. That's just quite remarkable. <laughs> yeah, it was funny, huh? Um, and you mentioned in, in the notes too that you have used White Cliffs in earlier books. It's obviously a location that has fascinated you before. How did it come up in the, in the earlier books? Yeah, so it's a book. Sorry, it's, it's a book. It's a location for my third book, which is Murder at Maple Manor, which I suppose is about as close to a closed kind of country house murder as you could get in, in the Posey Parker series. 
and it's the location for a house, a fictional house, on the White Cliffs there. And it's quite an atmospheric book, um, number three. It takes place on New Year, a New Year's party in a snowstorm. You really have this sense of being on the edge, on, on a border, being cut off. And elements of that story echo throughout the Posey Parker series, even though each book is designed to be able to be read on its own as a standalone story. Elements of that story do go through, mainly because of one particular character that Posey meets on the White Cliffs in book three. He will crop up again and again throughout the series. So, yeah, it's a a place I go back to in my writing and it's a place I go back to physically as often as I can. Oh, that's wonderful. You mentioned some of these key houses, Noel Coward, Ian Fleming. The book also has a location, a house there, a famous brand new Art Deco glass house, which the fashion designer couple in the middle of the story have built and occupy. And although you say that this is a fictional house, it's based on a reality house. Tell us about that. Yeah, so right at the end of the beach, actually, still existing today. They're private houses, so you can't you can see them from a distance, but you obviously can't go in. Are uh, I think it's three cottages together, but they make one big Art Deco house. And these this was the house that Noel Coward owned up until 1945, I think it was. But it's an Art Deco house, and it's very much part of the landscape there. It's designed to almost look like part of the cliffs. It's glass and it's white. It's that typical sort of concrete of the time painted to look very grand. I think I based the house in my book about Murder on the White Cliffs, I based it really upon that real house, but I added on my own embellishments. In the book, I made it much bigger. I made it really kind of made of glass, a bit like a glass armadillo. Um, But I I tried to be faithful to the Noel, Noel Coward house in where I had actually placed it on the beach itself. Great, great. Now, you have referred to this period as being a time of of freeing and liberation for women. Posey Mm -hmm. is presented as now London's premier female detective. After a few books, she's gathering quite a reputation for herself. And as we've mentioned, they are based on the classic English country house mysteries, but they do have twists. You have a number of international settings as well or or, um, international themes that come into it. Was developing Posey as a lead character who's both kind of a very out there young woman, but also keeping within the sense of what would be acceptable in the 20s, especially I think she's a woman of quite reasonably high birth, you know, that the, the people mm-hmm. that she meets in the upper middle classes or upper classes. Was yeah, that's developing right. her a convincing backstory a challenge? It actually wasn't a challenge at all. I did some research. I did quite a bit of research before starting the series on, as we talked about, about London, the kind of, you know, what it was like as as, as a middle class, upper middle class woman who's possibly lost their fiancé or husband, reinventing themselves. I did quite a lot of research about what that would be like, where you'd be living, how much money you would have. And Posey Parker, as a character, came to me pretty, pretty well formed, actually. Um, she's quite a strong character and she pretty much came to me like that. I think what's important for the reader is to give the taste of history and to be very convincing on that. But you, as you say, you need a lead character who's kind of out there and who your readers can really sympathise with. So, you know, Posey is, she's quite sassy and she's beautiful, but I think there's also this sense with detectives, there has to be an undercurrent of something that isn't quite right. 
she's actually really sad. She's lost her fiance in the in the First World War. I suppose she's looking for somebody really. She's on her own. She's in London, and she has other small flaws as well. She has terrible taste in men, and she has a very sweet tooth. She has a tendency to be quite jealous of people. She, you know, especially girls who are I don't know better dressed or better looking than she is, and. She speaks her mind as much as I can make her in a kind of 1920s setting. So on, on that sort of side, she came to me quite fully formed. I just had to add in some things as well to give her a kind of convincing backstory, which was I wanted her to have some history in World War One itself. So book four, which is called The Banishing of Dr. Winter, is all about her role in World War One as an ambulance driver. And that was quite important to me to be able to kind of share a little bit of what that must have been like with my readers as well. It's not the whole story, but it's a good part of it. So, yeah. Yeah, that brings us actually to that question. I'm, I'm sure a lot of readers are fascinated. In, in each book, is there a kind of nub of true events or some little nugget that, that, you st- that starts your thought process? I mean, you've got one set in an English film studio, number five, and yeah. number six is set in Venice. Is each of those some, somewhere there buried a, a nugget of real life that got you started? I think that they're mainly from my imagination, to be honest with you, but there is a spark of something that sets me off. So I was in Venice and I, you know, it's an amazing place. It's so atmospheric. It's, the, you know, it's an amazing place to write a novel about. But and I love to do the research on a place, but I, I always like to have a little bit of a juxtaposition. So I didn't want to write a book in Venice in which everything's hunky dory, the weather's great, it's all kind of going really, really well. Murder in Venice is a book where Posey Parker is actually supposed to be getting married, but it's terrible weather and it's November, and the fascist party have actually been in power in Italy for two or three months, and nobody's quite sure about what that really means for their daily lives except they can see all these people swanning around in these very shiny black uniforms looking quite menacing. And I, I, I usually like to explore a situation like that, or, or I, I find, I see something and I kind of think, what if? And I try and take the situation on from there. Yeah, yeah. And with the English film studio, there, there were really film studios operating in England at this time? Yes, there were. And so Murder of a Movie Star, which is book five, is set in Wharton Hall, which is just outside of London. And at that time in 23, it is the premier film studio in London. And I researched, I think that was probably the book I had to do the most research for, even in terms of, you know, the exact kind of makeup they were wearing and the lights they were using. It's, yeah, it was, I, I haven't actually been able to visit it because it's been either flattened or turned, a little bit of it that is left has been turned into a housing development, I think. But I mean, I think... It's, it's quite easy to get the sense of it. There was a lot written about it at the time. Um, and it, there's, you know, later studios like Pinewood uh, become very important. But it was a really thriving industry and a really exciting time to be making movies in, in England that they, they thought for a very brief period of time that they might be able to uh, rival America. And, of course, they couldn't. But it's, it was a very exciting time to be in. And it was an exciting time to research about, actually, as well. It's marvellous. Look, perhaps just moving away from the specific books and turning to your wider career, you, you've you mentioned mm-hmm. that you were a lawyer for nearly mm-hmm. a decade, and then you moved on to writing with young children. So I guess you had a period where you were trying to write around another job or even just being a mum. So you had those 
times of early morning starts or late night finishes, and possibly they're even still going on. Tell us a bit about <laughs> your, your writing schedule. Yeah, my writing schedule at the moment is a little bit mad. So as I said, I'm, I'm now I'm a, t- I'm, a, I'm a full-time mom. I have a, a six-year-old and a two-year-old, and I am a full-time mom. And I write around my girls, but I do write every day. And I usually write when when my daughters go to bed, actually. And I think I, I'm quite disciplined. I try and write for between two and three hours a day. And I, I literally just write. I, I, I don't edit. I don't research in that time. I put the computer on and I write. So I'm, I'm a night owl anyway, but yeah, it does mean I have some quite late nights. But I, at the moment, it suits me and it's pretty much, I, I mean, I think it makes me quite disciplined as a writer to do it like that. I mean, let's see, when the littlest one goes to school, I, I think I'll work more with it being my day job again. But yeah, it has its challenges. <laughs> do you do a lot of research before you start? It depends on the book, but I would say yes. I, I would probably spend about a month doing research, three weeks to a month, every evening, yeah, researching. And and then I get all my notes together and then I literally just start and I go with it like that. And then I, I check my sources right at the end again when I'm editing. Yeah. Yeah, so I do, yeah. Is there one thing that you've done in your writing career more than any other that you see as being the secret of your success? How did you actually break through to get a publisher, for example? How did that happen? I'm I'm actually a self-published author. Oh, are you? And, yeah, I am. And that came about because I didn't know whether to go which route to go down. And when I was on this kind of little like career break and writing my work, I went to a really interesting um, talk in Zurich, which was run by the Zurich Writers Group. And there was a writer there called Joanna Penn, and she has a really great website, which is called thecreativepen.com. And she's a British um, thriller writer. And she was talking there and yeah, she, she kind of, she was talking, it was really about when kind of self-publishing was just beginning and she was talking about how quickly you could um, get your books kind of out there as opposed to waiting for an agent, waiting for this, waiting for that. And that was the route I chose to go down then. But I was incredibly lucky also about six months after I had released the first two Posey Parker books, I got picked up by BookBub, the big American, I suppose, promoter of books and that, I suppose, was what was a pivotal pivotal point in my career in that they suddenly overnight had pushed the first book to millions of Americans who were very kind and um, liked the book and wrote lovely reviews. And it really kind of took the first book onto um, another level and gave me a whole platform of um, new readers. And that was the point at which... I suppose the whole series really took off. It's fantastic. Was that like a book pub feature deal or one of one of those? Yes, it, it was. It was at the time. It's changed slightly since then. That was like seven years ago. But yeah, it, yeah, it was. It was like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a wonderful story. The best mm. and worst advice that you've got for young writers, well, not necessarily young, but writers starting out. There are quite a lot of people who start writing when they technically retire from their first or second or third job. But for new writers, what it, what would you think the best and worst advices that you've heard given? Oh. I think that the best advice, a couple of things would be, write well, well, I like this, this talk I went to with Joanna Penn. She said, write what you know. And I really could kind of took that to heart. And it's true. You really need to write something you love, something you're really convinced by, because otherwise your readers are going to know 
you're just, you know, you can't really be bothered and you're not really into it. So that's that's important advice. I'd say another really important piece of advice is to get a good editor, not somebody you know, not somebody you, um, you know, who, who who's very close to you, a professional, to, to, to look through what you've done. And the worst piece of advice, I think, would be there's this big kind of common perception about getting your first kind of three chapters absolutely perfect in order to send to an agent, to send to a publisher or to send wherever. Well, if you're going down that route, that's great. But I think a lot of people get very um, stuck with that idea. They think they've got to make, you know, these first three chapters absolutely perfect. Each sentence has got to be absolutely right. And then what happens is they get into this cycle of doing these first three chapters and never quite, I know, I know people myself who've done this and they never get on to finish the book. I think that's another quite important piece of advice I, I would I would give would be if you want to write that book, write it and finish the book and then at least you've got it in your hands and then you can edit it or get it edited. Yeah. So I, I think that's my <laughs> that's my advice. Yeah. So sort of more or less do a first draft with your internal editor turned well and truly off and then worry about yeah. the internal editor once you've got some a whole um, whole manuscript there yeah I think so I think mm. so there's just this tendency to get stuck on these first three chapters and then you never move on there's not chapter four there's not an ending and before you know it, you've kind of given up or got you know a bit frustrated with it and yeah. it should be fun at the end of the day yeah know? yeah look this is the joys of binge reading so turning to Lily as reader I like yeah. to see this podcast partly as a place where people can go to discover new writers, to discover new books, things that they're going to be the unputdownable books that they won't want to. They'll keep reading into the night when they should be going to sleep. Um, <laughs> what readers, what writers do you read when you're wanting a binge read like that? Yeah, well, I, I'm, um, I'm a really avid reader. I read every day, like before I go to bed. And I read lots of different things. When I am writing myself, I tend to, to um, read nonfiction. And it, that can be anything, biographies or, you know, political bi- biographies, whatever. I've just finished reading two books by Sean Bivell, who is a uh, Scottish writer. And they're so funny and so astute. And he is a bookseller in a small town in Scotland. And he's commenting about the book trade in general, but also about his customers and about stories and books and so the first book is called Diary of a Bookseller and the second book is called Confessions of a Bookseller and both were amazing and really kept me up most of those nights I didn't want to go to sleep I think he's just about to bring his third book out which is called I think it's called Seven Types of People Who Come to Bookshops but it, it, yeah they're really excellent in terms of fiction and series I like a lot of different um, things but of course I always come back to mysteries so um, I like quite dark Scandinavian mysteries like Arnolda Indridesen their Icelandic stories I always come back to Agatha Christie though I especially Poirot and I like Agatha Christie writing as Mary Westmacott as well. I, I have enjoyed all of her novels. There is not one that I wouldn't read again. <laughs> and when I want to really quiet, binge read, I really like reading Barbara Pym. And she was a writer writing in England between the 30s and the 70s. And they're not mysteries and they're not romances, but there's something of both in all of her novels and they're really novels about women yeah put into sort of strange situations and they again are really 
lovely books, very, very funny, very astute, the kind of thing that will keep you turning the pages way too late at night. And of all of her books, I would say the most enjoyable one for me is a book called Excellent Women. And that's my book that I would always come back to again and again. And I have come back to it again and again. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Sounds great. I, I'm not familiar with the Icelandic writer. I'll, I'll have to mm. uh, <clears throat> make some inquiries there. We're nearly coming to the end of our time together. So circling around and looking back down this, you've probably you've been writing probably for seven or eight years now, have you? Is it since you were published? Yeah, yeah I've been writing seven years kind of professionally, yeah. 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 So looking over that last seven year period, if you were doing it again, all over again right now, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would change? And if so, what would you change? That's a really hard question. And because of the way that I have written and the way I write with the, with the children, I don't think I could have changed anything. And I also quite like the way that my writing story and that Posey Parker in particular as a character has come on. I think that especially when you're writing a series, um, developing a, a character over time is, is all part of the story. It's all part of the journey. There'll be dead ends and there'll be slightly wrong characters and she'll choose the wrong person sometimes. But I think it's all part of the journey. So I don't think I would, I don't think I would change anything at the moment. Yeah, but it's yeah. a really good question. So that really does lead us on to the to the to the penultimate question, and that is, what's next for Lily as writer? What have you got on over the next twelve months? And do you have a sense that Posy's got quite a lot of life in her yet? She's coming up to quite a critical point in her own life, isn't she? Where she's about to get married again, and when that happens with characters, sometimes it changes the whole dynamic of the story. So, how are you going to? How are you planning to negotiate that change in her life? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So book nine, which is already published, but it's a very short book. It's a two-hour read, which is called Marriage is Murder with a question mark, is when she gets married. Yeah, I got a lot of emails from my readers asking if that was it. And I would like to say, no, it's definitely not it. I, I plan to take Crazy Parker. She's At the moment, I'm writing a book which is set in 1925, and she's a detective of the 1920s. So my plan is to take her right up to 1930. Yeah, it's an interesting one. When she gets married, she is going to marry somebody who is wonderful and who is very forgiving and understanding of her career. So I need to balance that with, yeah, with her being a good detective and being a sort of good wife at the same time. It's a challenge challenge for me. Yeah, but in terms of the next 12 months, so 2021, there are two Posey Parker books coming out at least, plus a short Christmas story. So that's next year. And in terms of, so, and, and after that, you know, as I said, Posey Parker is supposed to be carrying on through the 1920s. So she hasn't stopped and she's not stopping yet. I would like to develop another series, which is slightly later in time, which is sort of around the time of the Second World War but a little bit of a spin-off from Posey Parker. So a couple of the same characters will be in that series, but that is something for, I think it will be it will be a series which will come out in about two years' time and it's slightly under wraps at the moment. 
sound as if you've got a very good marketing nose as well. Is it something that comes naturally? I mean, the idea of a spin-off from Posey Parker is actually a very good, I'm sure a publishing house would love that idea. It's very strong in its marketing foundation. Yeah, it's something that um, I've been asked about. I'm, I'm quite um, open to suggestions from my readers as well. It's always really interesting. I, I have really wonderful readers who really like to um, communicate and whether that's through reviews or emails or whatever it might be. And quite a few people have said they'd like to read something set in the Second World War, but in the same kind of area, that central London kind of, yeah, that, that kind of area. Yeah, yeah, I, I suppose I do. As I said, I'm very, I'm very, I'm quite led by my readers as well. And, and somehow it's, it's all worked out so far. So hopefully it will carry on like that. It brings us beautifully to the, the closing question that I like to ask, and that is, how do you interact with your readers and how can they find you online? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I get quite a few emails from my readers. I mean, I get emails to me and I get quite a few messages on Facebook or people tagging things on Facebook as well and on Goodreads. But I would say mostly people email me and um, I try and respond. I do like sort of one day every week where I try and respond to everyone in one go. (laughs) And um, so if people want to find me, it's um, my website is the best place to visit. And it's www.lbhathaway, which is all one word, .com. And there are links there to my Facebook um, page and Twitter. But I mean, Facebook is really, I think, where people tend to go at the moment. So, yeah, you can find me there. Yeah, it'd be lovely to hear from people. We will have links to all of those um, sites on the show notes that are published with the podcast. And you're quite happy for us to put your email on as well? Yeah, could you put the emails that you've been using with me, which is Author Hathaway, I think it is. Yes, is sure. right. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll make sure that it's the right one. Well, that's lovely, Lily. It's been great talking to you. It really has. I'm very impressed with the very sort of straightforward, focused way in which you've tackled this series and you've obviously have developed a very strong following for it. So all power to you. Two books out next year. That'll be, that's pretty amazing with two young children as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye for now. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted 
and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.